When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to After the Deluge. I am Justin Cox, and I am your host. I usually start these things by looking at a review from back when whatever album we're talking about was released, but this first Bright Eyes episode will be a little bit different. Season one of After the Deluge was about Jackson Brown, whose first record has Doctor My Eyes and some huge hits, so he's in Rolling Stone right out the gate. Um, Not so with Bright Eyes, whose first record is quite literally just a collection of disparate songs recorded on an 8-track in an Omaha basement. He's 14 years old when he makes some of these songs, and if there's a review for that one from 1998, I failed to find it. I did, however, find a Pitchfork review of Letting Off the Happiness, um, and this episode is going to talk about both of those two records. Um, That Letting Off the Happiness review is not on Pitchfork.com, but I dug up a copy on the Internet Archive Wayback Machine, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. What I love about a record review is that the reviewer is kind of locked into that specific moment with no idea what's to come. You have this trembly-voiced Conor Oberst coming up on the periphery of a specific wave of emo, but by the time that wave crashes and explodes across a wall of Hot Topic t-shirts, Bright Eyes is making country folk songs with Emmylou Harris harmonies and releasing a largely electronic album that same day. That's a pretty fun journey, and I hope you'll take it with me as we go album by album on this podcast. Very quickly, let's bang out some brass tacks. A collection of songs, 1995 to 1997, was released on Saddle Creek Records on January 20th, 1998. Letting Off the Happiness was released on November 2nd of that very same year. It was produced by Mike Mogus, and its recording was split between the Oberst family basement and Andy LaMaster's Chase Park transduction in Athens, Georgia. I spent a week drinking the sunlight of Winnetka, California, where they understand the weight of human hearts. See, sorrow gets too heavy and joy tends to hold you, the fear that it eventually departs. And the truth is I've been dreaming of some tired, tranquil place where the weather won't get trapped inside. In the upcoming episodes, we're going to really pull apart the specific albums, but for this one, I mainly wanted to kind of set the scene. And by scene, I mean those Saddle Creek kids and whatever was happening in Omaha, Nebraska in the late 90s. That I was able to have that conversation with Tim Kasher of Cursive is insane and perfect to me. I'm going to add that I'm not a Bright Eyes expert. I don't have, like, tattoos of lyrics. I've joined some, like, I've joined the subreddit and some Facebook groups and stuff. People love these songs, and they love this music, and so do I. I'm not an encyclopedia, but I can absolutely take you on this sort of uh, album-by-album little trip over about two decades now, I guess. Before we get to my conversation with Tim Kasher, let's go back in time to the late 90s when writer Jeremy Schneier hit publish on his review of Letting Off the Happiness for a very different pitchfork than the one we know today. The date on his review says... December 31st, 1999, which was like the eve of Y2K, 
but that's like a whole year after this album came out. So that's probably just an artifact of the internet archive. That New Year's Eve thing stood out to me because right before they sing Contrast and Compare, Connor Oberst and Neely Jenkins of Tilly and the Wall, there's a voice that says... No, it's seven, so it's five hours before 1998. Here's the song. And the last time I... So if that narration is right, then this song was recorded on New Year's Eve of 1997, which is cool. Uh, Pitchfork gave this record a 6.8, which feels honestly about right to me, but I'm certain some diehards would dispute that. I think I'm sort of putting Bright Eyes records on a Bright Eyes curve, and that makes a 6.8 for letting off the happiness feel fine to me, honestly. The review starts... So, my pal Boris sticks his head into my room while this Bright Eye CD is playing and says rather incredulously, What the hell is this? Emo country? <laughs> that gives you a glimpse of Pitchfork in the late 90s. Um, I personally think more Pitchfork reviews should start with friends named Boris like popping in to drop some thoughts. Uh, let's get back to it. Here we have an album which combines the sad, slow melancholy of such celebrated artists as Smog and Cat Power with characteristics more in keeping with Oberst's former band, Commander Venus. It's a good time for me to add that today's guest was also a member of Commander Venus, a band that also included members of The Faint, Tilly and the Wall, and more. It's a good little preview of what they were doing in Omaha, Nebraska in in this uh, Saddle Creek scene. Occasionally, Oberst's lyrics can get a bit ponderous and pretentious. Witness, a poetic retelling of an unfortunate seduction, the title of which should pretty much say it all. Ober's scratchy, barely-on-key holler, which made listening to Commander Venus more of an endurance test than an exercise in pleasure, is definitely an acquired taste. It really is endearing for the most part, but it'll get on your nerves when he gets all teary for the entire duration of certain tracks. What holds the whole mess together is Oberst's evocative, intelligent lyrics and his knack for the well-placed, cathartic yell. That's ding-ding for me. That, to me, nails the record. That's that's a good job, Jeremy Schneier. Um, given the fact that Oberst isn't quite 20 years old, we'll let certain errors, considering the overall quality and ambitiousness of this record, slide a bit. I mean, hell, the stuff that most otherwise talented people come up with when they're 18 is usually complete crap. So let's just call him, quote, one to watch for and leave it at that. This early days Pitchfork review kind of has the same messy charm of letting off the happiness for me. I think the writer ultimately nails it. It's a little bit messy, a little bit overdramatic, tons of really cool, interesting lyrics, clearly someone to watch for. Um, Good, but especially good when you consider how young he is. I mean, that's what Letting Off the Happiness is, you know? It's a very cool record, clearly a launching point and kind of like a line in the sand for Saddle Creek. And just like, I mean, it's so good, but it really is kind of like a, whoa, dude, let's see what this guy does next. And you know what? He proceeds to do some very, very, very cool, interesting stuff. Tim Kasher is the singer, songwriter, guitarist, and founding member of Cursive, The Good Life, and broadly just an artist and creative person who's worked in music, film, and more. He just released a great solo record called Middling Age, 
We had this conversation right after Cursive returned from a tour with Thursday and right before he went on a solo tour with Laura Jane Grace and Anthony Green. In a second, you're about to hear The Invisible Gardener, which is track one off of a collection of songs, 1995 to 1997, which for most artists would just be a instrumental prelude to kick off an album. But for Bright Eyes, that kind of holds some extra significance when you look at all the records that lie ahead. just got back from uh cursive and thursday tour how was it oh it was good and totally stoked to be back home but it was uh all totally manageable despite we had like a lot of strange um yeah i don't know like we had a our boss broke down at one point that was wild wow a tour a show got canceled because of a blizzard like and uh then i had to drive through a second blizzard it was just weird we just i tour through january and february often and now i feel like maybe my luck is dried out has ran out yeah those aren't even those aren't even the typical run-of-the-mill pandemic cancellations no that was what's kind of funny about it is that uh we none of us got covid the whole concern about the tour was covid you know but we are actually quite careful the entire time so beautiful well cool i'm gonna ask you about your your uh, new solo record that's coming in a little bit but let's go like Let's go way back for for the yeah. purposes of this um, right now. It's sure. really funny. It's really funny because I I'm I recently watched the uh, spend an evening with Saddle Creek thing, and oh, yeah. obviously a whole bunch follows up this period of time in the late '90s and everything. Clearly, something was happening in that place, and I have some more questions about it. But um, how do you feel about those early cursive records? Well, I don't want to pat myself on the back here but i feel i feel good about the about the cursive records um i mean i probably feel good about my whole kind of mission to start another yet another band when i started cursive was kind of like well why don't you start taking it seriously for once you like you dumb piece of shit and like make music that you're not going to be embarrassed of you know yeah later and so i i feel comfortable with the cursive catalog but i can't say that that's about like slow down virginia and uh you know a lot of stuff back then i guess yeah it seemed it seemed like maybe at that time i mean it's not me to put this on you but i mean you moved to portland for a period right and then you're back is it is it when you came back from portland that 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 mindset shift happened uh it was prior to that i had already we had done two cursive records at that point uh those two cursive records though, are quite are you know the the third one was domestica and there really was kind of a there was certainly like a a shift um yeah just kind of like a pr- overall approach uh and i don't really know how or why that happened other than uh maybe i just kind of uh just needed to get just a little bit older for me or something i needed to um kind of wisen up a little bit more as far as songwriting goes but again that doesn't suggest that i i don't dislike those first two they just kind of they have a different feel almost not really a different band, but maybe a different band, kind of. Yeah, a yeah. Band, you know, I mean, it seemed it seems like Cursive really, and I'd say Bright Eyes as well. Like there was a very conscious, uh, not do the same thing over and over type thing as you follow it from from letting off the happiness to Fevers and Mirrors to Lifted. It's like kind of mm. can draw some parallels. I mean, me as an outsider, it's a different kind of music, really. But like Domestica to Ugly Organ and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jenny's in the garage She's 
got the call and no troll She rolls it out so quietly It's Saturday as usual It always is Alright, so I'm gonna try and I, I hope I don't fuck this up, but I heard there's this, this is about kind of like Saddle Creek and Omaha. I've never been to Omaha. Apologies if I speak ignorantly about it at all in this, but um, there, I remember someone talking about like, it seems a little antithetical that like, if you started an antique store in some town, that if an antique store opened across the street from it, it would uh, take half your business. It would, it would like, it would, whatever it would, it would not be good for your business because now there are two of them. But what they kind of go on to talk about is like, if you have one antique store in a town, no, it, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. And it's not a destination for anybody, but then all of a sudden you have five, six of them. Now there's like a, that becomes what this town is. And now there's like a, a feeding energy that comes off of that. And so like, I, you can read a ton about like music scenes out of LA and New York and even Seattle, but like those bands were all from different areas of the Pacific Northwest or, or Washington DC with like uh, minor threat and all that something about the thing that happens in Omaha in the late nineties with Saddle Creek is like the bands don't necessarily sound the same. It's not a place that it feels like a, a, I mean, you only know your own experience, but I'm trying to understand Omaha at that time and, and everything that came out of it. Well, firstly, I, I very much am a proponent of the um, more antique stores, the better. It's <laughs> uh, something that I think is talked about often. We have a couple um, myself and the, and the other gentleman in cursive, we have a, couple bars in Omaha and uh and uh I'm always a fan of like you know if, because they're both of our bars kind of just sit off a little bit a little off and you know one's like way off in the cut and another one's just kind of like a little locked off to the side and uh, if they had more bar if we had more bars around them then you'd have a a scene yeah that's like what you call you know it'd be like you'd have like a corridor of bars and yes yeah. you know it just brings more people actually not less uh, and yeah, you're right. If there was like, for, if it would have been just bright eyes or just the faint, um, there, there wouldn't have been, um, there wouldn't have been like a, a story there, you know, or the, or the story would have been like more of a footnote. Like they happen to be from Omaha, Nebraska. Can you believe that? You know, but, uh, to have, uh, yeah, to have like a slew of bands from there, I think it was, um, kind of a, you know, that definitely made the story. I, there wasn't a lot of a discussion amongst ourselves between us all about like, I, oh, you're, you know, Connor, you're doing folk stuff. So we have to go over here and do, you know, like that's already taken, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, we didn't really talk about it, but I do think that it was all kind of, um, there's a lot of, uh, like silent implication of, of, um, or you know what, or how about maybe the bands talked about it within them, within their own, um, mm. little, uh, their own little, uh, circle. Uh oh, this is turning into a horror movie as the, your door is opening behind <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> that's either a cat or a dog with something pushing up against it oh yeah dog i don't know she it's made a small it. person small person with a knife <laughs> yeah, she uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know i i think and i think that i use the the faint as perhaps the best example of it just because they went on they went on they took such a hard left from what we were doing and i think that was so cool i and i imagine that they probably talked within their own party about like oh you know like bright eyes is doing this folk stuff and chris is already doing this hard rock stuff and we all wanted to um write with one another like write alongside one another but we didn't want to um 
overblown and other off more than we already felt like were, you know? It's incredible, really, though, because like you talk about like having all those bars down and like that, that's how you get a scene or make it a place to go to. But it's almost like being like, okay, this scene has a dive bar, a, a like high end club, a like I, I, it's just it's it, it's not like one of these scenes where it's like oh yeah a bunch of skate punk came out of San Diego in like the mid nineties or whatever it's all it's it's yeah. all of a piece and there's really some kind of like artistic exploration or something like a thread that binds it really but what the faint does and what Bright Eyes does is such a different thing. Well, here's the thought. I don't think I've really jumped. This kind of just popped in my head because you're, you're kind of using that at the bar analogy. Um, we really were born of uh, eclecticism was like pretty important, like really early on. And I wonder if that, I, you know, I bet that kind of stuck around uh, this. So that kind of was important. It was important to us to not uh, homogenize what we were doing. And uh, I bet that kind of like inadvertently created cursive and in the faint those two styles were a little bit more like outlier for us um because mostly you know i should mention lullaby for working class as well because they were um they were doing something different from all of us too they were like let's use like all of these like like uh you know acoustic instruments in like a a a vast you know you know like let's litter our our liner notes with like all of these different instruments that no one's that people are generally unfamiliar with especially in indie rock but anyway yeah that's what we were born of is indie rock absolutely right i mean we were born of um you know archers of loaf and spoon and uh but then also fugazi and uh you know just all kinds of stuff super chunk but uh yeah i mean that that really feels like when i'm saying that there's like a thread that binds it that's what feels like there is you know and like what you just mentioned about lullaby for the working class you see you see those i mean the sound the faint does and then the the the, or um cello coming into cursive and then you you catch these kind of things all over bright eyes it's like what is that instrument why is that there it's cool you know it's a deliberate choice tell me what you wanted to hear thing where it's like it was called lumberjack records and it was like oh no there's a distributor called that we got to change yeah, it to Saddle yeah. creek and when they yeah. and so it's like they got to change it i think the way it was referenced was like so we all got everyone got together and then like agreed on saddle creek like to me it's funny for me to try and envision what all of us getting together and agreeing on it being saddle creek is like all right faint lullaby for working class bright eyes all of us come together let's 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 like how does that how does that look you know how how connected and how often are these people seeing each other how formal is a thing like that at that time probably not incredibly formal uh and i guess not i guess not formal but like how are you arriving at a decision like that it's me trying to like see that world it's just a funny thing to envision yeah i mean i do i mean i vaguely remember um i think it was just probably just like a I don't re- remember so much and maybe others do, but I don't remember a sit down, uh, you know, meeting of like, you know, hear ye, hear ye. What is the name, new name? We can no longer use lumberjack. But I do remember it just being uh, like an important conversation that was being, that kept being passed around to everybody. And, and then it, 
again, to my memory, I feel like you, I would credit, and you probably know all of this better because you just watched that documentary, mm-hmm. but I would kind of would credit it to, to Ted Stevens. Um, his point being that Saddle Creek was the road that he would always take to get up to the uh, Oberst house, which was um, one of the, you know, that was one of the main hangs that we all had was, um, uh, you know, Matt, Connor, and Justin is their parents' house. Yeah. Uh, and they live next door to Bart Volkmer and Bart Volkmer was part of our scene too. He was in Smash Smash Mouth, if you're familiar, is our mm-hmm. Peterson and Clint and Bart's band before Smash Mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they had the name first. Uh, they were a great band. Uh, but yeah, in... I mean, and so that was just, I kind of remember that just being floated around and like, to me, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a, you know, it seemed, it was just kind of like picking a name, but we wanted it also to be something that meant something to us. And Saddle Creek is a, um, it is a through way to, uh, to a lot, to where a lot of us were living at the time. Beautiful. Is it also a Creek or just a road? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I think think that it was, I, I think, um, or maybe it was. Uh, it died in the Dust Bowl. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely um, it's definitely a flood plain of sorts. Um, I know that specifically because one of the bars that we have is right on Saddle Creek and gets flooded the shit out of it. It's just, wow, it's just awful. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of in between. It's like it's the it's a it's a creek. It it's all a street. There's no creek there anymore. But I I, I mean maybe like 100 years ago there was. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's beautifully authentic and intriguing and, and it like adds to the, like, I can envision this place where these guys are, where it's, this is all coming from. Um, all right. So yeah, you mentioned, you know, good, good. No, I was just gonna say there is, I do, that helps me recall that there were some issues, you know, before we finally decided on the name, there was like those, those, those hiccups were kind of things like saddle. You don't have like word saddle in there, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's denote, it's kind of connotes, you know something kind of more country western and yeah uh but yeah because it's just for i wonder what how what saddle creek looks how people envision it like the way you've mentioned it is funny because for us it's like absolutely just it's just a road (laughs) yeah totally all right so you mentioned take that road up to the oberst house um you mentioned you mentioned driving up that road and these guys were in these bands and a part of this whole scene those those siblings um so you're you're you Mogus Todd Fink all born in '74. Connor Oberst born in 1980. I, I, there's there's a quote from Mike Mogus saying like, I started hearing these songs. It's like, damn, this kid's pretty intense. It's like he's 14 years old. Like, what it what is the perception of this kid playing these songs? Because you guys like cursive like had traction and stuff. Like there there was stuff happening. You guys were a little older. Like, it's fascinating to me think to think about like wow what's that what's that kid up to you know i had a beautiful beautiful time the drives and the talks were amazing the kind of friend i thought i'd never find i had a beautiful beautiful time It didn't take us too long to kind of uh, to uh, buoy him up as a peer, 
as a, a peer to all of us. Um, I, I, I do remember that transition because I mean, for one, I grew up with uh, Maddie, his older brother yeah, and played in bands with Maddie. Uh, so Connor was absolutely a younger brother for, you know, that a lot of those early years. Um, but he just kind of grew, he grew fast and, uh, he grew up fast. And I think a lot of that, I think he attests, uh, this to this as well is that, that he grew up with us, you know, like he grew up with older kids. Um, both him and Justin were just like funny kids. They're just funny guys. And, um, we just, you know, they kind of wanted to hang out and we kind of kept letting them hang out. <laughs> and, uh, so Connor just kind of grew up fast and, uh, and had a lot of, you know, and as we, everyone heard kind of had a lot of clever ideas early on and I'll, I'll attribute, um, Ted Stevens yet again, Ted has like so much to do with so much of this. I think that I feel like that documentary gets it wrong a little bit and they kind of like attribute me to so much of it. I think that people just kind of liked what I was doing with slowdown, but Ted had so much to do with really, um, kind of, um, keeping it all together, you know, uh, giving everything direction, I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, um, he saw something in Connor more than anybody else did. It seemed like, and he really championed Connor at such an early age. And, uh, and that was cool. And I think that was, I think that um, maybe more than possibly more than most anyone, that's maybe one of the most important influences for Connor. Uh, nice. uh, because I think, cause Ted gave him so much of that confidence to just like, yeah, you know, these, these, you know, like record, these, got to get these songs down on tape and like, let's put them out. And, you know, I like the way you put that, that he saw something in him because it's like you at that time, like those, like those, like collection of songs, 95 to 97, like four track basement recordings, like you do got to, for a lot of it, you do got to kind of see it's pretty rough, you know, you got to find the, the, the potential in there, but you listen and it's, it's there. It's like, shit, man, there's something this kid's doing. There's he's doing something. And to be that young, it's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll confess to not, I had, didn't see it the way that he did either, but I certainly didn't dislike, certainly liked it, but I liked it probably much more the way that you like your friend's music, you know, yeah. like your good buddies recording, re, you know, recording stuff. And like, I take it, I took it seriously and I enjoyed it, you know, I mean, but I didn't really quite see it's a, it. I didn't quite see what Ted was saying initially, you know, but uh, yeah. But, Hang on it. I got a cat. I got a cat now going yeah. crazy. One second. Restrictions of time and space retire. Obviously, any little change in anybody's life determines how things play out differently, but to be that young kid with this like essentially indie rock infrastructure around you, there's like there's a place to channel it. There's that that's all there. That seems that I have to imagine that plays a big role in like, by the time you're 20 years old, you're making fevers and mirrors, you know, you're not just like, Hmm, I, I like playing songs. What, how do, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? Who? He was, a, he was a student. He was a, he's, he was, he was very clever back then. Again, like I, I mean, he was uh, six years, my, you know, I was six years his senior, but I didn't have any, I guess. I mean, when I was 20, I was hanging out with a 14 year old all the time you know yeah like and and it didn't seem weird to any of us because both him and justin were both they're just they're just they're just intelligent clever witty astute kids you know yeah that we just had to we just had to like not let them drink um alcohol or smoke weed you know nice nice i like uh i like they're like referencing back to like they were they were funny kids you know they were cool funny kids and it's like in the moment take yourself back to the moment when these records are being like bright eyes is being introduced to the world the idea of this as a funny kid is is 
not at all. It's it's all it's very yeah. very sad, trembling emo boy who's talking about his mom drowning babies in a bathtub. Yeah, but he really was he was and is hilarious, you know. I had a brother once he drowned in a bathtub before he'd ever learn how to talk, and I don't know. What his name was But my mother does I heard her say I think you get that now. Um, uh, so, so like I came, I came to Bright Eyes and Cursive, if I'm totally like honest with it, at like, at lifted it, lifted an ugly organ and then went back. And it's like a beautiful gift when you have that ability to do that. Um, and around that time I was like in college and, and, I was sorting out like, what's emo? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't totally get this. Like I didn't have a lot of like vocabulary for that before, but I I don't know if, if that, and maybe it doesn't even matter, but like, was that word used around like bright eyes and cursive in that scene? Was it, I'm fascinated with the idea of what like emo seemed like it was taking shape and like kind of couldn't be defined at that time and wondering where you what you feel about that before we get to tim's late 90s emo scene report i want to invite you to subscribe to the after the deluge patreon if you subscribe over at patreon.com slash after the deluge you get bonus content on every episode and no ads plus occasional episodes that you won't find in your normal feed you will also get a zine that's a diy magazine made by me all about this season of the show mailed directly to your home I've immersed myself into some podcast series in the past, but then kind of when you finish, it's just sort of gone. Um, This like thing you can hold in your hands and pick up and revisit, it's cool. Um, I made one for the Jackson Brown series, and I love that it exists. And if you listen to this Bright Eye series, I think you will too, and I will be very excited to go down to my local post office and send you one. There's a link in the show description, and now let's talk emo with Tim Casher. Uh, God, I don't know if I can pinpoint a year when I first heard the word, but um, we we got to um, I feel like we got to enjoy a, a, a maybe a, at least a few pristine years of virginal years of not being aware of what the word emo was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of remember hearing the words like when we when Chris would start kind of doing fledgling tours in the late 90s you know maybe i mean like 97 98 i guess yeah does that seem right when did people start using when did people start overusing that word i i I talked about this on the fevers and mirrors one but a friend who was like talking about emo was like gave me a burn cd fevers and mirrors that i didn't listen to because she was talking to me all the time about this this thing called emo and i think i was some combination of being like I like a lot of old emotional folk music and, and like songs like like singer songwriter music but who emotional music has list, existed forever. And also I like punk music and that just seems like the lamer version of that. This is all, this is all self-criticism on my, on yeah, myself, yeah, yeah. you know, but so that was probably like 2000. And I think by the time I was like aware and like had a grip on it, it was like 2001 or something, but I think that was happening in the late nineties for sure. That's like when that's me arriving to it late, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and we were just, you know, we were like perplexed by it when we heard it and and then just had to spend years um, defending not the word emo, but defending what we were doing. And I would often I would often use kind of what you were saying. I would be like, 
do we discredit Leonard Cohen? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. You know, yeah it's like, it's, it's like, what are we doing here? Are we saying that nobody should write? I mean, are we going to just discredit like all of the great writers through history who wrote, you know, like emotionally like charged uh, biographies? You know, I mean, it seemed like a weird, uh, it seemed very uh, anti, uh, it seemed very anti art to me. Yeah, this word as a as a descriptor of something that differentiates this music from something else. It's like that's that's one of the backbones of music and songwriting forever. Mm. Well, so something when you listen to like those those first two Bright Eyes records, one of which is just a collection of stuff, and then one of which is like getting a little bit more toward like consciously making a record with um letting off the happiness, you get this like I, I always enjoy the kind of period when you listen to like you listen to like bleach like nirvana bleach and you hear the whole thing and it's a lot of noise and stuff it's a cool and interesting sound but then you hear like about a girl and you're kind of like hmm that's like that's 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 like a different thing that's a person either letting themselves write a pop song or that's someone learning how to write a pop song or whatever but you get that in these, like you get falling out of love at this volume and June on the West coast. And those, do those feel like, do you, do you have any recollection? And I told you, I wouldn't like hit you with on the spot specific stuff like this, but any recollection of like, Hmm, that's like, that's a different thing that that's a person using this. They jump out on those records. Letting off the happiness was like a big, uh, was a big leap forward for like all of us. I'll say that as like, as we were very much working as a collective at that point, you know, um, we all got really excited about everyone's records. You know, we were always like super supportive of everyone's records. And uh, I remember letting out the happiness came out. I feel, I want to say it kind of came out around the same time as curse of storms of early summer. Yeah. And, um, and it was, a, it was um, pretty much, it was monumental. It was actually, it was really monumental because prior to that, um, it was the collection of songs, which was very bedroom hodgepodge and, you know, good stuff and whatnot. Uh, but at that point, Connor was still kind of like, you know, I mean, we were, I was doing Commander Venus with him and that was Commander Venus was his cursive and his faint. Yeah. You know, so Bright Eyes was the, uh, was other, you know, it was his, like, I also am doing stuff on my eight track. And uh, so when Letting Out the Happiness came out, that was like, uh, like, oh, wow, this is great. He's like going like full bore with um, bright eyes. I dreamt of a fever, one that would cure me of this cold winter set hard. Heat to melt these frozen tears, burn with reasons as to carry on. Into these twisted months I plunge without a light to follow But I swear that I would follow anything Just get me out of here But you get six months to adapt Yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty monumental shift. I mean, uh, there's like something really... The idea that you're all coming together as you're calling it a collective to like lift everybody else's thing up. Uh, like, it seems like maybe that the existence of a thing like that now is maybe cordoned off to the internet. I mean, especially during the pandemic, like it's hard for me to imagine. Sure. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like I'm aging person. I'm in mid- middling age, but I don't know. It's hard to, it seems unique even in that time, whatever you guys had happening, but it seems like it'd be extra unique now. 
this is probably just gets into like dull conversation or it's maybe dull to me because it's like <laughs> talked about it so much, but, but online I think has a lot to do with it. I think that just, you know, placing, I think you're going to be more, much more likely to find something like this, like in Cheyenne, Wyoming or something, you know, where there's just like not a lot of scene uh, to be spoke, to be spoken for. And, uh, and that, I think that was really to our benefit, you know, like we, we've you know we were like a group of kids who all kind of like got um obsessed with music and with playing and writing music there wasn't a ton of other things going on and also we recognized full well that we had to do it ourselves there was like in omaha there really is not there really weren't was not other there weren't uh, avenues out or you know yeah and that's and, and and maybe that's maybe there was some pre-internet benefit to that or or as you're suggesting maybe the internet maybe this can happen happen more often with the internet i don't know i'm also middling aged i suppose as far as not understanding how the internet really works with, with <laughs> these days yeah so so it's sort of like there's not a scene unless we make a scene in this place and then well and we were so insular i guess it's like that was i don't know something about something about all of that kind of like we didn't really realize well we didn't even know what to compare ourselves to you know but i do think that there's a lot of benefit to um to us being kind of way out there in the middle of nowhere and yeah. uh in and then being like we don't we can only help each other you know and i visited my brother on the outskirts of olympia where the forest and the water become one and we talked about our childhood like a dream we were convinced of the perfect peaceful street that we came from and i know he heard me strumming all those sad and simple chords as i sat inside my room so long ago and it hurts that you're still shaking from those secrets that were told. By a car closed up too tight and a heart turned cold. What was there? I mean, when you're when you're at that kind of early, early phase of like starting a band or playing music, there's a lot of shows, especially in like Indian punk scenes, where the audience is essentially like a handful of people and the people in the other bands, like how much of like those early shows and like those early Saddle Creek shows and stuff like that were like, was there a good amount of people in Omaha that were just like people who came out to watch these shows, like part of that scene, but just as not, not people who played in Saddle Creek bands, but just people who liked that music and wanted to go see it. Uh, we really were pretty much our own fans for a lot of that. I think for through, I think maybe all, of, I think maybe all of the nineties, like we were all pretty much like shitty bands who only went out and saw each other. And, uh, and, you know, there was to be in, in deference of like the smattering of kids who came out, you know, there were, there were some, there were, there was a, there was a very, very small scene of uh, people who supported and, uh, and, you know, came out to shows and helped out. But we did, it's mostly house shows, you know, and we play Cog Factory. And I do remember the first handful of years of touring. Uh, there was, I think that we all had, you know, we all had similar stories of like, yeah, it was this, you, you were playing to 200 people in New York and 30 people in our hometown, you know? Yeah. Uh, like we were, people were starting to get to know us everywhere except for Omaha, it felt like for a little while there. But Omaha came around and um, mostly due because of, I mean, it's kind of fucking sucks that way, but it's like we got national attention and then Omaha was like, what? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I'm reading, I'm reading this uh, Dan Ozzy sellout book right now. 
yeah, I read that. The book. Yeah. yeah, it's really yeah. great. It's funny. It's yeah. funny. Like those first few chapters are like Green Day signs blows up, Jawbreaker signs, it goes poorly. Um, I think Blink One Eighty Two is there, and then you get you get Jimmy Eat World from Tucson or Tempe, Arizona, and it's just like similar thing, but even fewer bands to play with and stuff. Like they're exchanging emails with like guys in Colorado and stuff, and then they sign and it's just the people in Arizona, like the boys made it like the boys made it out. Like none of the baggage, none of the, like, it seems uh-huh. like something unique to the size of town and the removed from the main places or something. I felt that way about, about the Jimmy world uh, chapter as well. It really, it really, it feels different than, uh, than the others. There, there's drama to be found in that chapter, but it had nothing to do with like the early scene. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole idea of the word sellout is like all the, the baggage that comes with it. And the, what does this compromise things does this blah, blah, blah. And it was like, we don't even have fans. We don't have fans to, to piss off yet. It's just some guy heard our demo and could tell we could make a, yeah. a melody and they yeah. were right. <laughs> I'm excited. There's a Thursday chapter, right? I'm not there yet, but it's hard to get there. Contrast and compare between the busy ones and the ones who don't care until there is no one that you really know. So I drift through these days. All right. So you're you're you talked a lot about the sort of like exploratory nature of these bands on Saddle Creek, kind of like an artistic bent to try new things. You strike me as someone I, I do some writing for the hard times, the satirical punk magazine, and that's those guys actually connect me with you and I thank them for that. But uh you're talking to them. I mean, you've made a movie, you have the good life you have cursive you've made solo records you have a solo record coming out quick note tim's album is out now and you're going to hear some of it at the end of this episode tell, can you tell me a little bit about that it seems like a constant itch to be doing other new things maybe i think that's kind of it just what it is i i i, I think that there's some like uh mental health to it as well i get kind of um i think that working constantly working on things kind of helps keep like the, yeah the devil away <laughs> yeah uh i i just uh yeah i get kind of depressed if i'm not if i'm not working on stuff and um i just get really excited about it i just i feel i mean i'm fortunate enough that i get to just fill my docket with uh these kind of selfishly grand it's <laughs> notions, cool. it's, it's, it's inspiring i mean the the idea that like uh you writing a cursive song, you writing a good life song, you writing a, a Tim Casher song, like this can also can we can t- ask you this question, but I, I've thought about it in terms of bright eyes as well. You know, you have a solo artist, you have a band, you have a better oblivion community center and uh Mystic Valley band. Like, do you occupy a different space? Do you know what you're writing when you're writing? Do you find that along the way? Is it some combination of all of that? Uh yeah. Yeah, I I kind of have um a different uh, uh different mindset i suppose and maybe a different frame of um of of, of references and of influences i suppose if i'm writing for different things um for different projects but i also kind of start some if i'm lucky i'll have like uh i'll have an idea for the album before i get started and that will kind of help steer the ship sometimes that's not the case though and so i have to just kind of work on like okay this is just generally a solo record and so i then i just have to kind of like wait and see where that ha- where that leads you know but um but yeah there's a uh, there's uh, there's also 
<clears throat> I've learned over the years that you're writing for your band. So um, uh, if I'm writing a good life record, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, I know that the tastes and the qualities and the flavors that um, Steph and Ryan and Roger like, and I kind of want to appease them, you know, I want to, I want to appeal to them and get them excited about it. And it's, it's, you know, obviously same with cursive, what's unusual and what's kind of feels like, you know, the feeling like alone on an, uh, deserted on an Island is doing this solo records. It's like, I don't really have a, I don't really have a sounding board for that. And, but I also think that's good too. I think it's just a different, it's a different approach that, uh, I kind of try to embrace that in that way as well. My problem is I think I'm a terrible, um, I, I don't think I'm a terrible editor, but, um, I'm terrible at knowing, um, the quality of my own work. And so, uh, with my solo stuff i don't have a, without a sounding board i don't really have people being like you don't hear that you know like this song this song that you're scrape, scrapping over here is your best song you know and I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know i don't like that one as much as these other as these, like <laughs> dour ones you know i don't think you're i don't think you're alone <laughs> in that um and i think also good on you though for being open to that kind of conversation when you're doing collaborative stuff because i think there's there's plenty of people who struggle with even hearing that kind of thing regardless of what they're making you know yeah, it, I think that some of the it, you should embrace one should embrace the benefits of working with a in a with a group, you know. Yeah, like that should should be the. I mean, hopefully that should be the point. You know, is um, getting a constructive feedback. I love it. All right, well that that um, draws a line perfectly to you have a record solo record coming out. Um, can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's called Middling Age. Uh, it's uh <clears throat> as many of us have had uh, strange experiences through the the pandemic now uh, uh i won't be as so as so dull and obtuse as to say it's a pandemic record because it's because it's not i actually <laughs> wrote it a lot of it before the pandemic started but that's what's strange about it that's the what that's the strange experience for me is that i opted to hold on to this record because uh i uh I, I couldn't really let go of the record during the pandemic, knowing that I would never be able to tour yeah. for it. Um, I just felt like it was such a disservice for all these, for this record that I, every record I do, you, you work really hard on it and you're like proud of it and you want to, you know, you want to get it to as many people as possible. And I felt like without having any outlet to be able to go to everyone's respective towns and kind of like show up and be like, Hey, I have a new record without being able to do that. I just, I just hated the feeling of it. And I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, especially with my solo stuff, I'm just such a, a smaller artist. And um, I just, I thought it would just, it would just totally die on the uh, internet vine. If, uh, if I were to lose it during the pandemic. So that's cool. That's, that's a good way to put that. Cause like, I think there's an easy way to see it the opposite and be like, Oh, it's a pandemic. I'm just going to make a thing by myself and put that out there. But like, I get, I, I get what you're saying. And, I don't know if these words were yours or Rolling Stones, but an existentialist screed on mortality and loss that has inadvertently arrived as the world struggles, as the world struggles in kind. Interesting, like, all right, pandemic. Yeah, right. We have two year pandemic, but actually like last winter, not this is this is me venting my own uh, uh, <laughs> middling age existential shit, I guess. But last winter I had I had like a knee injury and then and I live in the Pacific Northwest. It's dark. It's rainy. It's cold long recovery whereas i felt like i just bounced back from every injury i ever had prior to that and then like i came out of that i came out of that period of time like taking vitamins and doing yoga and like just sort of like it's not it's like mortality seems way too dramatic for the word for it but it's sort of like a, a kind of a sprawling effect that probably has something to do with the pandemic i think kind of getting at what you're talking about it's like that's all happening but it's not happening 
in absence of a weird different world, you know? Sure. Totally. And yeah, it, it, I wasn't, I'm, it doesn't surprise me that a record that I would write would end up kind of reflecting a pandemic, a pandemic existentialist feel anyway. Um, and I did continue to write again, cause I was sitting on the record. And so I, I, I did continue to write into the pandemic. So I think there are at least a couple, one song in particular, and but maybe like a couple songs that are kind of definitely like a couple songs that are actually are kind of pandemic songs, just in the sense that I was writing so much stuff. And then I would come back to this middling age record and, and be like, well, I'm still not going to release this yet. And then, and so I kind of got to a point where it was like, you should just write another batch of songs and see if you can outwrite what you already have and did end up with like a couple more songs as a result. But that's, it's, it's all just strange for me. I really do like to just kind of like, I kind of, I like to keep hurtling uh, forward, you know, and um, I like to release, I don't know if the public needs it, but I like to release a record every year just because that's what I do. It's just, um, I just, I'm always, I'm mostly writing. And uh, so it was strange. It was strange to have like two years. So I guess the last record I released was, cursives get fixed in 2019 so so yeah to me for my own like vanity i have you know the pandemic has given me like a two-year hole of 2020 (laughs) and 2021 where i didn't release anything but yeah Yeah, the shower has a window overlooking city streets you'd glower at the rush hour on hungover mornings I post up on the toilet just to keep you company I don't think about you all the time I don't think about you all the time I don't think about you all the time Well, uh, thank you so much for talking. I feel like there's anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you about. No, no, this is great. And I really wish you luck with all this. I think it's a, I think it's a cool project. Thanks so much. I will accept that energy and go forward <laughs> with it. <laughs> awesome. Where can people find you and things you make? Uh, I think for a middling age for the new record, it's out on 15 passenger records, which I think is one five passenger.com. If, if I'm not, if I'm correct, that's, that's pretty much, that's probably the the best spot. That's all solo stuff and uh and cursive stuff and tim thank you again i i appreciate it i know you're just fresh off tour you got a record coming out plenty going on and hell yeah go to patreon.com slash after the deluge if you want the cool deluxe version of this show and thanks for listening beavers and mirrors next week and there's a boy in a basement with a four-track machine He's been strumming and screaming all night Tell them the tape this will call